Hi, everyone. I'm Anna Ganey, Executive Chair of Canada 2020, and it is uh, my pleasure to welcome all of you today to uh, our event. Thank you all for, for taking the time to be here. I'm going to begin by acknowledging that I am joining this virtual event from Montreal, uh, which is situated on the unceded lands of the Kanyan Kehaka, or Mohawk Nation. We recognize that the Mohawk Nation as custodians of the lands and waters of this place its history as a gathering place for many First Nations, and we are grateful to continue adding to this rich history of exchange, both in person and in this virtual setting today. I'd also like to thank all of Canada 2020's partners, without whom today's discussion would not be possible. So today is the, is the third in a series we've hosted following COP26. We've explored the world of climate activism with Catherine McKenna and Catherine Hayhoe, as well as the challenges that climate migration will pose for us in the coming decades in a conversation with Parag Khanna and Warda Shazadi Mian. If you missed either of those events, they are available on our Facebook uh, page and you can um, listen to them at any time that suits. So please join us. There's more information on our website and as ever, it's free to join and register for our events. So I'm very excited for today's conversation, focusing on the economic transition to net zero. With us to talk about the opportunities and challenges are economist, author, and United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Change and Finance, Mark Carney, as well as President and CEO of Van City, Christine Bergeron. So thank you both for uh, joining us today to have this conversation. And on that, uh, Christine, I will turn it over to you. Great, thank you, Anna. And thanks Canada 2020 for convening us for this important conversation. I'm delighted to be here and I'm joining you from the lands of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. I'm always so grateful to live and work in this beautiful region. So to start uh, just a little bit about Van City, we have uh, long been a climate leader among Canada's major financial institutions. For those of you who don't know us, we're Canada's largest community credit union with more than 550,000 members across British Columbia. As a values-based financial cooperative, building a clean and fair world is part of our bottom line, alongside making enough profit for long-term sustainability. We introduced Canada's first socially responsible mutual fund, and we're the first North American financial institution to become carbon neutral in our operations over a decade ago. Today, we're North America's representative on the Leadership Council of the United Nations Environment Program Finance Initiative, and that oversees the implementation of the United Nations Principles for Responsible Banking. This year, we committed to bringing our lending portfolio to net zero by 2040, and we're proud to join the Net Zero Banking Alliance. So I'm delighted to be having this conversation today. So we're just gonna get started. So Mark, now that you've had some time to reflect on COP26, what's the one thing you think people should understand about what happened there? And then what's one thing you think didn't get as much attention as perhaps it should have? Okay, well, first off, thank you, uh, Anna and Christine for, um, and everyone at Canada 2020 for having me, those of you who've tuned in. I'd like to, I'm, I'm gonna start with two acknowledgements. Um, and first, uh, I'm coming to you from, uh, from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Um, it's my, uh, I'm very grateful uh, for the opportunity to be here. Um, the second acknowledgement um, I would like to do, this is the last thing I'm doing, it's not the last thing I'm doing, but it's the last public thing I'm doing before uh, the holidays. And I'd like to acknowledge just, um, you know, it's been a long year, a lot's uh, been accomplished. We obviously have some near-term challenges coming um, with uh, Omicron and the health situation. 
Uh, and uh, that brings its own stresses. Um, and uh, so I want to send my best wishes to everyone uh, uh, during this period uh, and hope that you can um, uh, spend time with uh, loved ones uh, over, over the next few weeks. Um, I would also like to say, and then to go to your question, uh, Christine, is that it has been, uh, it's been a long year. It's been a difficult year in many respects, but it's also been a good year. And I'm going to be glass half full in many of my remarks. I'm not um, Panglossian about this. I know there are, are big challenges with the climate transition, but a lot of progress has been made. And so to, to get to the heart of your question, um, what's the big thing that uh, came out of Glasgow uh, positively? Um, uh, I think that you know, finally, we had um, countries uh, and companies uh, coalescing around uh, this one and a half degree target. Now, it's often discussed that uh, Paris was less than two with one and a half, um, but the one and a half was a stretch target. It wasn't at the core. It was an overshoot. Um, so in other words, uh, going above one and a half degrees and coming back through some form of sequestration. Now it's a hard one and a half uh, as a limit. Um, uh, unfortunately, that's because the science and the experience is much worse, and I don't have to tell you uh, uh, out in BC, uh, given uh, uh, difficult events the last few months, um, well, uh, the last year. Um, but, you know, coming together around that and just the movement in the last 18 months from less than 30% of the world's emissions covered by net zero objectives, such as Canada's, uh, to over 90%. So that's the first thing, that, that sort of anchor, and then a lot flows from that, and we'll get into that. This thing that I think is um, probably underappreciated, totally understandably, um, is the huge change to the plumbing of the financial system. If you're ever buying a house or looking at an apartment, check on the plumbing. That's my recommendation. If you're looking at a financial system and you want to change the system, uh, you change the plumbing. And I'll just, there, there were 24 different initiatives. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk out the clock and give you all 24. Um, uh, you're well familiar with them, given Van City's uh, uh, position in the Net Zero Banking Alliance and work with the UN. Uh, but let me just highlight two in particular. Um, the first is that uh, the world came together and launched a new form of disclosure, a new body uh, to govern new form of disclosure around sustainability, starting with climate change and um, standing on the shoulder of giants, if you will, of existing initiatives largely voluntary private initiatives of the TCFD, this of SASB, uh, Integrated Reporting, others, um, and bringing those together. And they will have a new standard released by the middle of next year, which is lightning speed for uh, financial regulators. So that will give the information in a comprehensive way uh, and consistent way across the system. And, you know, over 40 countries uh, comprising 75% of global emissions supported that, including all the major emerging economies, uh, the G7, the EU and beyond. And, and I just note that uh, Canada is very proud that we will be um, the America's headquarters uh, for uh, what's called the ISSB, um, uh, based in Montreal. Now, that's one leg. The second is, uh, you may have heard, some of those on the call may have heard about climate stress testing. This is effectively a way to bring the future to the present for banks and insurance companies and, and, and credit unions and others and say, well, if you stay on your current strategy, if you, if you lend to the, the same areas you do in the same way, what's your portfolio going to look like? Which of the companies uh, that you're lending to, which of the sectors have a plan for that one and a half degree world uh, that uh, uh, everyone has, has just agreed to, 192 countries have just agreed to as the objective? 
Um, and how can you help them? Basically, how can you help them get there? Um, so those are two of the uh, 24. Uh, the punchline on the stress testing is it's 100 central banks, over 90% of global emissions. So the coverage, the change to the plumbing of the system that then is twinned with huge amounts of money that uh, is looking for net zero opportunities uh, gives some reason for optimism that if you have a plan, uh, you should be able to get it financed. Great. And so I guess your perspective, you know, would be for those who have, who, who say that the commitments coming out of COP26 don't go far enough, you know, do you disagree then? You think that... Well, you know, <laughs> well I mean, I, when I said the glass is half full, it's half full. It's not all the way full. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, uh, uh, people who say it doesn't go far enough, uh, they're right, um, because uh, the commitment, the objective of one and a half degrees is now crystal clear. But if you add up all the country objectives, I'm going to start with their objectives, um, you know, by what percentage point will a country reduce its emissions by 2030? And by what point will it get to net zero? The add up of that is 1.8 degrees. That's the objectives. But then if you look at the policies uh, to support those objectives, there's another gap. Uh, and that's about two and a half degrees. And then, of course, those of us who are observers of policies uh, know that sometimes they don't get implemented or sometimes when they're implemented, they're not as effective as uh, you expected them to be. So there is still a gap that needs to be closed. Um, we need more policies and more ambition um, out, of, out of countries, first and foremost. Again, I would argue that the countries can be confident in having greater ambition because the private sector is the, is 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 getting there and the and the money is there uh for that ambition um and the good news and i'll stop on this is that uh one of the commitments in glasgow was that countries will come back in uh in 12 months time it's now 11 months time uh to uh, egypt uh, sharm el sheikh is where the next cop is being held and they're supposed to do better there's you know it's a sort of as english say scottish say revise and resubmit on their country uh, programs. Now, let's see what they do. Um, mm -hmm. I would put an emphasis on, and and this is a a, a, a group, uh, you know, the broader Canada 2020 family, if I can put it that way, that thinks in these terms. I put an emphasis on the policies uh, that can help close those gaps, and then get that money moving from the balance sheets of banks and investment managers and credit unions to people and businesses. Uh, up and down this country and around the world, uh, who are going to make the uh, investments uh, uh, to build a more sustainable economy. Okay, great. So the the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which you co-chair, um, you know, we we're talking, you were talking about this, the movement, right? It's mobilized forty percent of global assets already, and likely and counting. So that's a number really that was probably unthinkable even two years ago. But maybe you can help those who are listening to understand, you know, what does a capital mobilization actually mean on the ground, right? Yeah. So for example, again, I am in British Columbia. So to the farmers here whose barns and livestock were, were literally washed away in recent floods or to Northern communities whose infrastructure is threatened by, by thawing permafrost. Can you help link that connection, right? Because mobilizing capital can sound quite abstract, but of course it affects people. Yeah. And I mean, the first to say, uh, you know, what's happened in uh, BC in recent weeks, I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, uh, you know, the lives lost, the 
you know, last count, um, 600, I think 650,000 uh, head of livestock uh, perished, um, but and the livelihoods taken uh, because of that. Um, and then, uh, you know, regions cut off and uh, enormous economic cost and, you know, greater human cost. And so what, how does this fit in uh, to that? And um, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that um, the, the first responder uh, in, in these cases is, is government, um, uh, government to uh, address the immediate um, human and economic uh, calamity. And uh, I, I think we saw it actually in the, I know we saw it in the fall update yesterday, a provision for uh, literally billions of dollars uh, for exactly that. Um, but then we need to think about, well, how do we build more resilient, how do we rebuild? Um, how do we build more resilient infrastructure? How, um, what are the, um, uh, you know, and what are the industries that are going to be able to uh, be profitable uh, uh, and resilient in a world that has much more volatile and extreme weather? Because remember, uh, we're only at 1.1 degrees um, and we're having these one in, you know, the floods were one in 500 year events on, on, on previous experience. They're not one in 500 year events anymore. And so we have to build uh, for those. And if the world succeeds in its objectives, we have another 0.4 degrees to come and even more extremities. And I think, you know, in many respects, the experience uh, that we've had um, uh, extreme heat, extreme flooding, uh, concentrated in BC underscores just how important it is to stop at one and a half degrees and not keep going to two degrees because all the science uh, shows that that is, it's nonlinear. In other words, it, 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 it doesn't, it gets worse, but it gets a lot worse uh, over, over uh, if, if, if we overshoot. Now, so first and foremost, there's a role for government in addressing the immediate aspect, but then um, the issue is where does the private sector come in in two ways? Um, that $130 trillion, that 40% of world's uh, financial assets, its first focus is on making sure we hit that one and a half degrees. We don't go well beyond it. Um, and it's to get money to businesses and people, to homeowners who are you know, retrofitting their houses, um, uh, for example, or, or uh, buying a lower emission vehicle, getting money to people who and businesses who are getting emissions down. And to put this in context, it's 130 trillion. The cost of the adjustment on an annual basis is about 4 trillion in total in the biggest estimates. So that's a big number. And it's about one and a half trillion dollars more uh, per year than is being invested at present. But relative to the scale of these balance sheets, it is a readily financeable number. Uh, and as uh, you know, loans get repaid and new loans are made or investments are sold and new investments are made, uh, this money can flow again to people who have plans uh, in order to do it. Now, the challenge where uh, to, to go back to the experience in BC and then generalize it is how do we adapt to the changing climate? How do we you know, whether it's somebody's home, whether it's how we build highways um, uh, and, and how we run businesses. Um, part of the answer, as I said, is from the government. Mm -hmm. Part of it is from insurance, um, understanding weather patterns better and being able to pool uh, insurance as well. And then part of it is an investment and, and the thought process of, of, of finance and businesses when you invest, of thinking about investing not for 
uh, the BC of my parents. My parents are from the area where, where they grew up uh, and the weather patterns there and the stresses, but uh, the, uh, you know, the BC of, uh, of my children or their children, uh, if they live there and the weather patterns that will be there and, and making sure that the investments are fit for uh, that changing climate. Yeah, and so maybe before we move to, you know, this is local, before we move back to global, you know, we're talking again about the effects on people and, and definitely something that's been more powerful in, in recent public conversations is this increasing focus, you know, if you think of net zero to ensure that that's also happening in a way that's a just transition. So really trying to address the issues of inequity in the context of getting to, to net zero um, in that transition. And so, you know, I hear you, there's there's government, uh, there is private sector, but how how else do you think about this in terms of is, is there a role there to really be thinking about um, ensuring that the existing inequities don't get worse? Uh, well, there, there is a role for everybody. And I think that's, um, you know, one, one of the key messages is, uh, you know, we sometimes talk about um, a whole economy transition. In other words, it's going to affect every sector of the economy. But it's more than that. I mean, it's, it's a whole of Canada transition. We're all in this together. Um, and um, it's just like we all come together when there's a natural disaster and, or a health crisis, as is, you know, people do things to help their neighbors, often unseen. Um, and, uh, and that's what we need to do in this situation. And so there's, there's several aspects of that. One is, um, as I say, you know, role for government without question in, in, in some of the extremes. And, and, I, and I would suggest that this is something we need to keep not just back of mind, but front of mind in terms of thinking about fiscal capacity in the country, uh, because uh, the draws uh, on climate and the role for government, the appropriate role for government uh, on climate are, are, are considerable. Um, and uh, we should make sure we have that capacity uh, for what is uh, not just here today, but coming tomorrow. Um, second thing is, you know, for just transition, first and foremost, uh, I, I think of it in terms of people and uh, people moving uh, from careers, jobs, livelihoods they have today to new ones, not uh, jobs uh, disappearing overnight um, and then being left uh, uh, to uh, suffer the consequences. And since this is a transition that many aspects of which we can plan um, and, and we can execute against the plan, it really puts a premium on knowing where we're going, having in place um, policies that get investment over a period of time, um, having training schemes uh, that help people who are in the most affected sectors, businesses today, and you can one has a sense of which ones they are, um, uh, that they're the ones who are getting the training and, and helping to find opportunities um, where they live uh, as opposed to uh, having, having to move. And that takes a whole uh, approach. Now, I'll throw one other point out, and this is a big, big element to it. But when you think about uh, your world, um, uh, you know, of finance and, uh, you know, direct, uh, you know, mortgage finance, uh, credit union, uh, retail finance. Um, one of the, one of the interesting things that's being um, developed in some other economies is there's some big expenditures uh, for individuals, uh, for example, to um, what's called retrofit their home, to make their home uh, more energy efficient. I personally think there's a role for government and government programs can be much more effective uh, even than they are today in order to help with that. But there's also a role for risk sharing and return sharing 
of, of the private sector. So, you know, it's an additional capital cost that pays a dividend over time in lower energy costs over time. So um, uh, in the UK, for example, uh, mortgage providers are looking at actually co-owning uh, the heat pump or co-owning the, uh, the, the, the investments in uh, retrofitting um, and then being paid out over the life of the mortgage um, uh, in a way that's uh, where the benefits are shared with, uh, with the household that's, uh, that's living in the apartment or the house. Yeah, that's interesting. It's sort of that same idea of maybe not putting all the onus on the individual tenant, but yeah. thinking about the building envelope or on, on the, those financing. So, you know, you've been, you've been quite successful as we were talking about in mobilizing capital. So what are your plans for mobilizing finance on a global scale, really, to be leaders and, and to get to achieve the global 1.5 degree goal? Yeah, it's a critical question. So one of the things that, you know, uh, lots of people ask about or, or think about and they say, well, you know, it's all well and good uh, us making the efforts in Canada and we're, you know, Canadians will do our part, we'll do more than our part. But what about China? What about Brazil? What about the rest of the world? Um, you know, their emissions are going up quite rapidly as those economies start to uh, modernize or continue to modernize is a better way of putting it um, and, and move towards our levels of consumption. So what about those economies? Because we could do a lot here, and but if they don't move, we won't get there. Um, and so part of the answer to that is to ensure that uh, the Brazils, Indias, Indonesias, uh, Vietnams, uh, Chinas of this world can access uh, private finance, private finance, I'm not saying government finance, private finance at scale with enough speed so they can make these huge investments that they need to make in order to ensure as, as they grow, their emissions decouple from that growth and their emissions come down. Um, and there's a, obviously there's a, you know, there's a virtuous circle here. The more the finances there, the more ambitious they can be uh, and uh, the easier it is going to be for all of us uh, to cap out uh, the increase in global warming. So what do we do? Um, well, the first thing we've done is with this uh, pool of money, this GFAN's pool of money, is to get some of the major institutions to uh, allocate um, a trillion dollars of that um, per, per year to these emerging and developing economies subject to some conditions, and one of them is the ambition with which they show uh, in terms of the transition. Uh, the second is to uh, integrate those flows of funds much more uh, tightly with, um, uh, there, there's some funding that comes from the World Bank, other international organizations, and to make sure it's part of a coherent package, the, the terminology is something called a country platform. Um, and I would say that that, alongside the development of a, a global voluntary carbon market, uh, th those are two elements that are absolutely critical from the financial side in order to really have a step change in, in investment in uh, these emerging economies um, and, you know, and mobilize, as, as per your question, mobilize the finance that's needed at a global scale uh, so that we can all get to one and a half degrees, because obviously we can't just get there in Canada and um, uh, the world have a different temperature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of work. Uh, a lot of work to be a done. A lot of work. Well, a lot of work to be done. I wouldn't. I, I would to just to give some color to that. Um, you know, it's not just a concept. Uh, there were conversations um, uh, with, uh, including with our Prime Minister, um, uh, President Biden, others about these issues in Glasgow that I was part of. And um, you know, it's 
it's it's complicated, but it's not that complicated in the end. Um, and it takes uh, a meeting of minds ultimately at the G20, uh, who are the major shareholders of the institutions, and mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to come together to a shared approach. Personally, I think this is one of the you know top three things that needs to be accomplished by uh, Sharm El Sheikh, and certainly we should use that uh, the benefit of that deadline to. Uh, uh, to really ensure that those who have influence over it, those who decide over these things, uh, uh, can uh, can get to get to uh, a position, not just where the idea is more concrete, but actually um, uh, deals have been reached with a handful of com- countries to begin with, and then uh, it can be rolled out more broadly after uh, after the Egyptian call. Mm-hmm. That's great. So then, maybe going from from global and and back to national. How do you envision Canada's role in the future economy and in the transition to it? You know, what's the path really for Canada to become a global leader in transforming, you know, what is a quite a resource-dependent economy into a clean and sustainable one? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think first thing, uh, this is, uh, we have a very diversified economy. I mean, whether it's BC or whether it's Canada as a whole, and Yes, we have uh, an important resource uh, component to our economy, but we're, you know, uh, we're one of the leaders in AI. We're, we're uh, one of the leaders in uh, finance, uh, leaders in agriculture, leaders in uh, consumer goods, leaders in uh, global e-commerce platforms, uh, etc. So we've got a lot of uh, expertise and skills. I think, you know, given that it's all of Canada, we draw on that. Um, you know, every country. That said every country and virtually every industry, you start with energy. Uh, The reality is that of uh, human uh, emissions and anthropogenic emissions, 75% of them can be traced back to energy, uh, whether it's electricity or fossil fuel or renewable energy. So uh, at the heart of every country's strategy is an energy transition in all of the senses. So uh, getting to that clean grid uh, by 2035, uh, and not just a clean grid by 2035, it's something in and of itself, but expanding the capacity. I mean, we're ultimately going to need at least to double uh, our electricity capacity in this country, uh, given that much more will be run off of electricity. Um, and so uh, that's front and center. Um, the, the transition uh, of our energy, uh, you know, carbon footprint of our broader energy sources, um, mm-hmm. starting with scope one and two emissions of, um, of our oil and gas sector. Uh, and there are huge investments that are contemplated there. Um, you know, we need to make them happen. We need to, again, a whole of Canada approach. It's not just, you know, leave it to the private sector and look the other way. It's, it needs an integrated approach and it needs to happen you know, now. Uh, it needs to start now in order to ensure that we have uh, opportunities uh, in some of the energies of the future, including uh, including big aspects of hydrogen. And again, I, I you know I keep sort of peeking out at the corner of your uh, thing there. I see you know I can see beautiful British Columbia, I, I, or at least I imagine it, Christine. And I think about the resources in BC, uh, whether it's whether it's hydro, the natural gas, uh, which is potentially blue hydrogen, um, uh, the direct air capture expertise that's there as well. So all of this wraps into a broader energy transition that needs to be accelerated. Um, and and I, I would I'd make a couple of other points. It's not a comprehensive answer, um, but um, I, th- I think we do need to look at, and again, 
you know, you have visibility given uh, your business on on our building stock, whether it's residential or uh, we've talked a lot about residential, but but also commercial building stock and and uh, you know where are we going on building codes and how can we accelerate uh, the transition with building codes? I mentioned a moment ago on AI and um, you know some of the Canadian companies, uh, Brainbox out of Montreal is an example, uh, are really sophisticated for the optimization of HVAC, so heating, ventilation, cooling, which can get, you know, 30, 40% savings on existing plant. And then with changes in code and, and, and new investments, uh, even more than that. So um, I think, you know, this is an area where we need to look at the big blocks of emissions, starting with energy, uh, thinking of buildings, thinking of agriculture, and, um, and working together on a systems level uh, to get the changes uh, in place and, and accelerate uh, the investment that's needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree, especially with that system perspective, right, of figuring out collaboration in a new way, because uh, to your point, you, know, you can have the technology in the building, but if you're not then working through how to finance that and get the individuals involved, you're, you're going to miss part of that. So when you think, um, Mark, about, you know, yesterday we, we saw um, you know, Minister of Finance came out with respect to some of our spending priorities. Where do you think climate should fit among Canada's broad spending priorities? Because clearly, you know, we look ahead and it's, you know, global warming and climate change, it's a long-term uh, lens, and yet we also need to take strong action today. So I'm just curious your thoughts on, on how it fits within these spending priorities. You touched on it a little bit in terms of how much money needs to, to, to go, you know, to these solutions, but to have any other yeah. thoughts? Yeah, no, it's uh, well. Let's and let's put it in uh, first. Put it in context. And I'm sorry to throw around lots of trillion dollar numbers, but if you know, a natural question is how much is the transition going to cost in Canada um, over the course of the next quarter century? And it's something like two trillion dollars. Um, various estimates of this, but I, I, I would I would center them around two trillion dollars, which is a which is a big number. Um, without question. Um, it is spread out over that period of time, uh, but it does mean that uh, we need to get going with it. And so uh, governments of all levels need to be, you know, both immediate, address current issues, whether it's um, uh, the uh, natural disasters uh, uh, that we've talked about earlier, uh, the health uh, uh, crisis that uh, you know continues to run, but they also need to be strategic and they need to be um, laying out uh, the investments and encouraging the investments uh, for this transition for two reasons. One, you know, to have a, I mean, well, for this, to have a sustainable economy, to have a just transition, to ensure that what happens is that Canadians get new jobs and better jobs as part of this uh, transition to uh, a greener economy um, and that we're amongst the world leaders. And there's every reason why we should be in that case. Now, what to me, the way, the way I think about it is that the government is not gonna fund $2 trillion, just like the private sector is not gonna fund 100 trillion plus on a global basis um, uh, for the climate transition. 75, 80, 85%, somewhere in that is going to be funded by the private sector, if we're going to uh, move uh, to that degree. Now, what helps the private sector get in a position? Well, one is a financial sector that's enabling it, and Van City has led the way. Uh, you know, you were early uh, with the PRI, you were uh, UNEPFI, early with uh, net zero banking lines, et cetera. So the financial sector, we've got that there, I would, I would argue, by and large. Then what really matters is clarity from government about um, 
regulations and pricing in the economy. So I salute the government for say, uh, for its plan for um, no new internal combustion engine vehicles after 2035 and at least 50% by 2030, uh, or for the clean grid uh, pledge that is, is now being uh, formalized, and for the price on carbon, a clear path for the price on carbon. All of those are signals um, that bring certainty to the private sector, help them invest. Clarity on building codes would help on that. Um, uh, uh, more granularity on uh, how we're gonna move from clean grid um, to uh, actual inner ties. And actually, uh, we may not have time to talk about it, but a distributed generation system, which uh, should develop over time. Because the government needs, I think, to retain fiscal capacity, not so much to be building the new hydro plant or wind uh, farm or charging station or or certainly zero electric vehicle we don't that's not what we're looking for our government for but it needs to have a lot of fiscal capacity to help canadians uh get the skills to get the new jobs uh it needs to have fiscal capacity to um help uh move some technologies from very early stage um, to becoming more commercial and then the private sector picking it up from that. Um, and those and those will be, you know, draws on government and, um, and, and needs to be prioritized today because we don't want to end up in a situation where, you know, 20, the middle to the la uh, second half of this decade, uh, we start these bigger transitions across industries and we don't have the resources or enough resources uh, in order to help Canadians take full advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's you know, there's there's a lot in there. Um, I'm gonna keep going so that we can then also get to uh, those who are listening some questions there. So maybe before we go to our virtual audience, um, you did touch at least on one of these, but I'll see if you've got more. So when you think about what actions need to be taken in 2022, so of course, as you said, it, it is long term, but we also need to start. You know, if you look back in a year from now and say, you know, we're on track and we've made real and significant progress, what are a few of the actions that you think we need to see? You know, you talked about the deals, you know, before we get to COP27, but um, do you have a few more? Well, I think, look, I think to, to really simple at a global level, what we need this year is that country objectives and ideally uh, the policies backing those objectives are consistent with one and a half degrees. Um, you asked me earlier, um, was it enough? And I, I think we agreed that uh, it was something, but not enough. And, you know, if I use the words of uh, the COP president, uh, whose objective was to keep 1.5 alive, as, uh, he said, well, it's alive, but the pulse is weak. And I think that's a fair, it's a fair assessment. So uh, let's, uh, let's get the pulse back to a, a healthy rate by countries stepping up. Here in Canada, um, I, I, you know, defer to governments, I suppose, but the, you know, objective, I think, for 2022, uh, you know, we've got to go after the biggest issues um, that are going to make um, uh, the biggest impact on, um, uh, on, on emissions, but also on creating jobs and, uh, and new industries for Canadians. And so for, I'm going to cheat, I'm going to say two things, uh, but uh, well, I'll roll it together as uh, part of the energy transition, so it's only one. Uh, but I think taking the clean grid and, and operationalizing it, the clean grid by 2035, so um, what's going to be borne by the federal government, by provinces, uh, by the private sector, what's the framework for that? How do we build out distributed grids, which means generation that's 
you know, more tied to specific activities, but uh, the excess can be drawn on by the broader system. That's ultimately where the world is going, in my view. Um, and related to that, in the broader uh, tent of energy, is, um, is having uh, a framework in the fiscal resources um, and uh, I would say more broadly, an agreement, which is a tripart uh, agreement between federal, provincial, and, and the industry around large-scale carbon capture and storage. Um, uh, because, look, this is, you know, 7-8%, uh, 8% of our emissions, uh, that uh, it's not the whole answer to the energy transition, but it's a very important interim answer, and it helps open up opportunities in hydrogen and other industries. Um, so, focusing in on the biggest aspects and, and in both cases and i'll just we'll finish on this uh there, there are there are big opportunities i just mentioned uh, hydrogen others there's there's jobs that come from the actual investments uh but if you look at getting to a clean grid and beyond it makes so many other of our industries competitive carbon competitive our manufacturing sector our auto sector uh and beyond our tech sector because it will uh will feed into that as well and knowing, last point, knowing that Canada is on a path for both of those, knowing that it's going to happen, it's not just investment for those, for the specific sectors on the energy side, but it's a signal for, uh, you know, to onshore manufacturing other aspects because it can be low, you know, competitive and low carbon, if not no carbon, um, uh, within, you know, within uh, the not too distant future. Yeah. Yes, there is something there, right, on the confidence to know that you can yeah. move forward with that. That's great. So, Mark, thanks so much for the reflections on, on these initial questions. We're going to shift to some questions from the audience. And so bear with me because I've just got to now read through the chat here. Okay. <clears throat> A question from Nurhan Ilgarhi. Mr. Carney, you previously mentioned a need for more blended finance facilities to mobilize private finance to improve access to climate finance. While we're starting to see examples in emerging markets, it is not a widely adopted strategy in Canada. What do you think are the obstacles we need to overcome to increase the adoption of blended finance solutions in Canada? Uh, and then as part of that, what are the roles of the various stakeholders, government, financial institutions, mm. or even philanthropy? Well, it's, an it's a great question. Um, and the first thing is um, when we think about blended finance, um, strategies in emerging uh, economies in many respects, um, I'm, I'm going to simplify a bit, uh, but they're taking out political risks um, and or um, extreme macroeconomic risks. So think about um, sharp changes to uh, the regulatory framework um, in, in uh, an economy or uh, exchange rate risk uh, that in some cases can move quite substantially and, uh, and undercut uh, a willingness to put you know, substantial capital in place uh, for a long period of time. And there's ways for um, the international financial institutions, World Bank, others, um, to minimize those. The second, by pooling the exchange rate risk, and the first, uh, by its presence and broader relationship with the governments, and, and you know, it doesn't just affect your investment; it affects all investments if you if, if you follow, and also just some of the technical expertise. So, now neither of those are risks that we need to blend away uh, in Canada, um, so to speak. Um, and so, when I think of, um, of, of blended finance in Canada, it's more around uh, areas, and you referenced it at the end, um, where there's an element of um, philanthropic or um, 
there, there is some element of a submarket, a potential submarket return, some form of return, but a submarket return. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring, I'll make it tangible, which is um, the uh, there are a series of investments that are being made, tens of billions of uh, dollars now, um, in so-called breakthrough technologies. Um, direct air capture, sustainable aviation fuel as, as two examples um, that are on the cusp of between quasi-philanthropy and venture uh, investing. Uh, they're coming in actually pretty quickly to becoming venture investing, uh, but uh, there's a consortium around that, uh, Bill Gates, uh, others uh, who are making these types of investments. There's some applicability of that uh, in Canada to some of our uh, investments where they may make sense to have a blended element, which um, uh, provides some cushion to accelerate the types of investments uh, as they're very early stage, and then they shift into uh, becoming uh, venture and then ultimately growth equity uh, where it's uh, pure private. Okay, great, thank you. Okay, a question from Aaron uh, Sidor. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correct. Is there a financial equivalent um, of carbon pricing? So a way to raise the cost of financing carbon intensive projects or reducing the cost of capital for carbon reducing investments or transition? So is there is there an equivalent to carbon price? Sorry, a financial equivalent? Yeah, yeah that's, I, I know. Oh, okay, I'm so a financial equivalent. Okay, so yeah, uh, it's, yeah it's an interesting question. So. So I'll answer it this way. Uh, hopefully, Karen, I'm, I'm doing your question justice, um, which is that if you go back to prior, the, prior to the Paris Agreement, so six, seven years ago, um, there was, and some had an idea that what we should do is instead of having a carbon price because it's so difficult to get that you know, through politically, uh, let's have a carbon price through the back door by changing uh, the capital regime uh, for banks. Uh, and credit unions. And so that it would, you know, more than just the credit risk, the riskiness of making the loan to a business that had relatively high emissions, we'd add a, a, an implied carbon price on top of it. Um, and uh, and that, that way we would get pricing and nobody would notice. Um, I mean, I, I'm simplifying, but that basically was the, was the pitch from some G20 governments. Um, and, you know, that falls down on a couple uh, levels. One is, it, first, from an accountability perspective, if you want to have a carbon price, have a carbon price and, you know, go to the parliament, uh, fight elections, uh, convince Canadians that this is this is what's right and this is what's done, as has happened in the, in the country. Uh, if you want to have uh, a clear regulatory target, uh, and I'm a big fan of these, you know, appropriately specified uh, to say that you know, we will have X by 2030 or Y by 2035. I gave the example on the autos as, as, as they're in the clean grid, uh, because that is close enough that that gets the, you know, businesses have to invest in order to meet it, but they have enough time to react to it. And it smooths the transition. It helps with what we were talking about, Christine, the just transition in, mm -hmm. in us. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, 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 the emphasis is in terms of, the financial equivalent, and I'm going to make two final points. One is just on the capital of the banks, you know, how much capital they have to set aside, is really about how risky is the loan. What's happening is that loans are becoming more risky because of climate, partly because of physical risk, but also because it's much more credible that governments are going to put in future policies 
that are consistent with one and a half degrees. And maybe I don't want to be lending to somebody who doesn't have a plan for that world. In fact, I don't, and therefore capital pricing is changing. Here's my last point, which is if you look across um, public financial assets um, in the energy sector, uh, you see an implied carbon price on a global level of about $80 a ton in terms of the differences in terms of cost of capital, which is, it doesn't mean the world's going to have a carbon price like that, but it means that consumers, um, other regulations, the direction of travel is broadly consistent with that. That's quite material, actually, given that the weighted average carbon price in um, uh, actual carbon prices is still less than $10 a ton mm-hmm. on a global basis. Yeah, that's great. Okay, great. Um, so a question from Jason Clark. At COP26, Prime Minister Trudeau proposed the target of achieving 60% of global emissions covered by a carbon pricing standard alongside the IMF and WTO. How can Canada play a leading role to expand carbon pricing, considering our domestic framework with allies like the United States? And what economic opportunities arise from broadening carbon pricing as we bend the emissions curve? Yeah, it's well, it's a great question. And uh, yeah, the prime minister made that proposal. Let's say we're, I'm going to round up and let's say we have 30% of global emissions uh, covered by some form of carbon pricing scheme. And with the Chinese uh, emissions trading scheme just coming into place, um, there's opportunity to broaden the coverage of those schemes. But the key is going to be to get other countries to come in. Um, And there is an opportunity in the G7 this year, uh, this coming year with the German presidency, who's very interested in in what they're they're calling carbon clubs. Um, Doesn't necessarily only have to be carbon prices. It can be a a equivalent regulation, but it's it's to um, encourage exactly this this, this line of thinking of uh, of learning from each other, uh, leveling up um, the, the, the effective carbon price, or at least the implied carbon price for regulation uh, across, uh, across the advanced economies. And of course, this is being reinforced uh, less positively by um, uh, trade concerns, trade you know, possibility of uh, what are called border adjustment mechanisms or effectively tariffs that are based on these differentials. Uh, I think this is, uh, I mean, it's obviously it's a big issue, that's why you asked the question. I think this is something that plays out over the next three, you know, by the middle of this, I was going to say three years by the middle of this decade. Um, And Canada absolutely uh, merits a seat at the table, not just because we're in the G7, but because uh, in my opinion and opinion of many others, we have one of the best designed uh, carbon pricing mechanisms, particularly because of the uh, the the uh, return of the of, of two factors one the clarity but also the return of the proceeds uh, to Canadians so it's actually a progressive carbon price as opposed to a regressive one. That's great. Okay, thank you. Okay, so uh, this is an anonymous question. Ordin- uh, ordinary consumer and citizens are looking for green investment options with reasonable assurance of returns. Financing green building retrofit seems like the perfect vehicle to raise capital with. So why are brick and mortar banks not offering such products to their customers? And how can they be encouraged to start offering green bonds for infrastructure, retrofits, et cetera? Uh, it's a fantastic question. I don't know how many people we have on the call. We've got a couple hundred. So uh, that I think we should go out and proselytize um, uh, the idea because um, I do think that, uh, and we touched on it 
a bit earlier, which is uh, you know a couple of aspects here. One is um, there is a lot of low hanging fruit in terms of improving um, the carbon footprint of existing buildings. Uh, you know, uh, there's considerable uh, emission savings of bringing everybody up to best practice, even with existing stock. And then, of course, there's things that can be done with um, uh, investment above and beyond that. Um, secondly, that um, you know. Uh, special purpose uh, bonds, um, you know, that structure is increasingly accepted. Um, and I, the thing that is critical in this is that um, whether it's called a green bond or a transition bond, is that uh, the return is coming or the designation is coming because emissions are being reduced. Um, you know, sometimes uh, let, let's, let's, you know, I'll give one characterization of the overall situation the world is in, which is that we've left it very late to address this issue. We have a very limited carbon budget to still stay at one and a half degrees. Emissions reductions are valuable, the ones that we can reduce today. And so um, some of the uh, big investments that can reduce a lot of emissions over the course of the next decade are valuable, even though in the end, that building will not ultimately become net zero. Um, so there's a, you know, you buy some time with that, you reduce emissions, uh, and then uh, you make the adjustment, you know, you, you rebuild the building, uh, you know, in the next decade, in my example, that's, uh, you can use it as a broader metaphor. You don't do that for everything. Some things you just need to shut down right away. Uh, but um, what, what the question is, is raising is, uh, it's, it's a good idea. Okay, great. And maybe I guess this could be a follow on, but as a question from Paul Reynolds, what exciting projects or endeavors are you pushing to demonstrate the path forward for other private investors. You obviously wear many hats. So this is you know, probably directed at some of the other hats that you might wear of like, are you uh, yourself through other work, you know, really pushing to demonstrate that path? Well, I think there's, uh, I, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, there is a very large component of uh, the emission reduction for this decade is proven technology wind, solar, battery technology, hydro, um, that needs to be rolled out at scale. Um, and so, uh, and, and that's everywhere, it's in Canada, but it's uh, across uh, uh, the G7 and the emerging world as well. And so one of the core things um, that I do with uh, some of the other hats is, is exactly that, which is um, uh, to build a new renewable um, capacity. Um, related to that, one of the things is that when big companies, and now what's happening is big companies around the world are saying, wait a minute, where are my emissions coming from? I've got to be on a path to net zero. What's the easiest thing I can do to get emissions, a lot of emissions down? Part of the answer is, ah, um, well, I'm buying power that has a lot of fossil fuel emissions. I will build my own power that is zero emission and then just use peaking. So, um, now, so that's that's a specific opportunity where this gets, and that's hugely valuable in and of itself, where this gets interesting is that ultimately you have much more distributed power. You know, this automaker here may have too much, the steel maker may have too little, and you uh, or homeowner may uh, have too much overnight in their car battery and ultimately knitting back together this distributed grid think about distributed computing capacity as an analog uh, is, is an enormous opportunity. So there's a sort of a simpler infrastructure element there. And then there's a broader technology element uh, uh, to the medium term. And I'm you know, basically working on, uh, on, on both of those. 
Yeah, and it's great that uh, you know those are finally coming together at the right time. Like technology is advanced enough now to be able to do that because people have been working on the concept of distributed energy for some time, um, but not always with the technology that could actually get us there more collectively. So that's good. Okay, um, question from Luke uh, Mazai. How does Canada get First Nations communities involved in the transition to net zero, given the vast amount of natural resources on First Nation lands? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think I said earlier that um, this can we can only really succeed in this if it's all of Canada um, and, and with uh, First Nations, Indigenous Canadians uh, front and centre uh, across just a huge range of um, of the projects and they 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 start with um for example a, a, a specific example again i'll go to bc is when one thinks about developing it's an open question whether this happens but developing both uh, blue hydrogens so hydrogen that comes from natural gas needs carbon sequestration to uh, be net zero and green hydrogen uh which uses renewable energy to uh, uh for electrolysis for the hydrogen um there is opportunity to have hydrogen of a sufficient scale um, that uh, it meets BC's needs, but it can also uh, meet other Canadians' needs or uh, be exported. Um, and, um, and also, given the geographies, um, absolutely uh, need uh, First Nation um, uh, participation from the start, uh, endorsement um, and full economic uh, participation as well. And of course, part and parcel of that, there's economic in terms of um, of, of equity and returns uh, more broadly, but there's, uh, and it's not a but, but it's, it's the fundamental point in terms of the skills for the new hydrogen economy and helping uh, those who want in, uh, in those communities to develop those skills uh, and be part, of, uh, be part of that in a way that they weren't fully part of, uh, of the, old, uh, the old energy economy. Um, so that's one example. I, I will go to another example, which is, uh, one of the things that there, there's an increasing recognition of, uh, and this is a strange thing to say, but of the value of nature, um, uh, and there's value of nature as um, as as a carbon sink. Um, so reforestation, regenerative agriculture is two examples there, uh, but also just the value of preservation of nature and biodiversity, um, and working with indigenous guardians, for example. That's that's an area that is 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 very scalable um uh where where they will be essential if we're going to do anything material on this as a as a country uh and 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 it's it, it's it's about a broader issue but from a commercial perspective or from a financial perspective uh many of the resources would naturally flow directly to them uh, given their central role in it yeah it's a good point right on the one hand uh, certainly it's, it's working with if there is land, but it's also engaging and learning from, right? I think uh, yeah. to your point on, on their, their history and knowledge of, of nature and our lands here. So I agree with that. Um, okay, question from uh, Molly Henry. The Canadian Securities Administrators is currently consulting on proposed climate-related disclosure requirements. The CSA proposal is not fully in line with the TCFD recommendations. If you were responding to the CSA <laughs> consultation, what would you say? This is very efficient. Thank you, Molly. I can I can respond uh, right here. Well, um, it's, it's, give your head a shake. See where the world's going. It's going to TCFD, TCFD plus. 
um, uh, that's where the ISSB is uh, going. It's clearly been anchored um, and just reference uh, even their uh, technical document that came out uh, anchored in the TCFD. Um, that's why it was endorsed by uh, 40 countries, uh, including all of G7, including Canada. Uh, so uh, I think it's sensible to uh, you know both see, not start on a path that is, is less than where the world's going, but uh, to uh, uh, be consistent with that. Uh, where the world's headed um, now. In fair, you know, fairness, CSA, it's a consultation, uh, and that, that's why you do consultations is to is to get feedback. And uh, uh, and I think we have an opportunity. I'll finish on this point, which is that the opportunity for it to align with what the where the world's going, given the timing of this consultation, given the ISSB, uh, and when they will come up with their disclosure. Great. So it looks like we are getting close to our time. And of course, uh, there's always more questions than what we, we get to, but uh, did our best to get through quite a few. So uh, thank you so much, Mark, for your thoughts on the various questions um, and really for the global leadership that uh, you're showing in the face of the climate emergency. Uh, you know, banks and other financial institutions effectively underwrite the global economy. And so as a result, um, they are in a unique position to help influence at least the direction. Of course, it will take more than um, banks and financial institutions, but certainly be, be part of that influence um, because what gets funded does matter, right? Um, so I did want to thank uh, Canada 2020, Anna and the team for making the space for this important conversation to take place today. Um, Mark, I don't know if you have any final comments that you'd like to share before we, uh, before we sign off. Well, I'll just I'll just say a couple things. First off, echo your thanks of Canada 2020. Let me thank you, Christine, for uh, for what you're doing at Van City, but also for taking the time to uh, uh, to you know ask questions and and, and manage this. Um, I, I scrolled through the questions, and there's uh, one of them uh, caught my eye, which was, uh, you know, we 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 haven't met our targets in the past, and you know what 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 can we learn from that, and and how can we ensure we meet our targets in the future. I do think that uh, policy is getting much more specific. Um, it needs to be taken down another level, as we discussed earlier, uh, in terms of the energy side, uh, with real, you know, that's driving real projects as opposed to concepts. Um, I, and, and this is the point I'll finish on, which is one of the benefits of having a financial sector, uh, you know, our major banks, Van City, others, uh, big pension funds uh, committing to net zero, is they're going to be reporting, you're going to be reporting every year about your carbon footprint, um, the extent to which it's aligned to one and a half degrees. And I suspect what you'll be doing is explaining, if it's not, why it isn't. And some of that uh, is likely going to be because of opportunities and policies that aren't clear. Um, and, and that is going to provide a real-time uh, virtually real-time feedback so that the financial sector can get money to the solutions that, you know, Canadians deserve. Uh, and let's all take advantage of that. You know, we're setting up a system so that uh, we can move forward together. And that that is a great way to end. So thank you for that. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Mark. And thanks everyone who attended. Uh, take care and have a great day. Great. Thank you all.